Welcome to the Womb Wisdom Podcast. My name is Holly Deaver, and I'm the owner and operator of Rosebud Wellness, where I practice women's holistic health, utilizing acupuncture, Chinese herbalism, yoni steaming, Arvigo abdominal massage, and the fertility awareness method. This podcast will be part conversations with women who are mothers or hope to be mothers on their journey through menstruation, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and motherhood, and part information about the holistic health practices that I use in my practice. Please enjoy. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is brought to you in part by the Rosebud Wellness Shop. You can find us over at rosebudwellness.com shop. On the shop, you'll find six different Yoni Steam herb blends that are used for a variety of different conditions. There's a blend to help with painful periods, one for cysts, fibroids, endometriosis, one for infections like yeast infections or bacterial vaginosis. There's a moisturizing blend that can be especially useful in the postmenopausal phase. There's a postpartum specific blend for the time period after giving birth. And there is a strengthening blend that can be helpful for women that have spotting issues, either mid-cycle, before or after their period, um, or for women that have really heavy bleeding. Even with all of the information that I have on the shop, it could also be useful for you to consider setting up a consult with me for a little bit more guidance, and that is also available on the shop. So again, that is rosebudwellness.com slash shop. Welcome back, everybody, to the Womb Wisdom Podcast. I am here today with Sarah Bivens, and she is the owner of Doing It at Home, which is a business, and it's also a podcast, which is really interesting. She um, interviews a lot of interesting guests and then also shares about her journey on there as well. She is a mama to one daughter and currently 27 weeks pregnant with her second baby. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Holly. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So we will start where I always love to start with guests, um, talking about your first period and early years of menstruating. What was that like for you and how old you were, what the conversation was at school and at home? Yes. So my first period, I love that, you know, it's the title of a book or a great blog or something. My first period. (laughs) I was in seventh grade. So I guess that would make me about 12, maybe 13. And, but I just remember the grade more than I remember the Mm -hmm. age. And I remember going to the bathroom at school in between classes, perhaps. And I had to wear not uniforms, but dress code as it were. So you had to wear the khaki pants and the polos and things like that. So I was wearing the khaki pants (laughs) and went to the bathroom saw the blood and thought, Oh, there it is. I knew exactly what it was. Thankfully, I understand that's not the case for everyone or education is fails. A lot of us, whether that's in our homes or in our education systems, I knew what it was. I knew what it meant. I had other friends at the time. I guess I was in the middle to middle end of the crew, you know, who got it. And I, I kind of looked at it from a couple different ways. On one hand, the social capital of it, cool, okay, I'm in. I can commiserate with the rest and we can talk about all and we can talk about pads and things like that. And then on the other side of things, it was a little, ugh, okay, now here's this annoying thing that's gonna come every month and I'm gonna go through all of this. 
but I do remember sharing with my mom, my, my mom and I did not, I didn't live with my mom primarily at the time. My parents were divorced and I was kind of doing a little bit of back and forth and saw her not as much. And she made it a point that day to come see me. And she brought me new set of nice underwear and a, a nightgown and some equipment as we called it and would refer to it in our house for the next years. We referred to tampons and pads and anything you use as equipment. And she set me I up like in that, that That's way. Way better yeah. than sanitary products. <laughs> right, right. And there was, now I can appreciate it as this, this mini little ritual of, of rite of passage and welcome, you know, she, she brought me nice things and pretty things and new underwear and, and the nightgown. So I do remember that and can appreciate that now with how I relate to my cycle and how I relate to the female reproductive system in general, that that was at the time, even if it seemed small and insignificant, a way of, of welcoming, welcoming me into the space. And I think I had I guess you could call it typical kind of teenage and young adult relationship to period in that it was a bane and something you kind of either joked about or gave you an excuse to get out of gym or an excuse to eat chocolate and bread and things like that. Very just kind of standard narrative. And then I do also recall because I I guess I just wanted to advance and graduate sooner than I think my body was ready for using tampons and inserting things into myself to deal with the period and not feel like wearing bulky pads and feeling like that was kind of gross. So I do recall trying to use tampons when really my body probably was not ready. I don't think it was ever fully inserted in those first couple of months when I tried doing it and it was so uncomfortable and I'd be mm. sitting awkwardly or that the pain of when it would just be kind of hanging out outside com- of you. I completely understand and uh, know that feeling. I would, <laughs> I would have to lie down in the bathroom to insert them. That was the only way I could really get it up there. So when I think about that now, I think, oh, I was just kind of introducing a little bit of trauma to my system that at the time that I just wasn't ready for, but I just went along with tampons are cooler. Don't do pads and, and take it from there and go from there. And I think in the years following, especially as I became sexually active in college, having a, you know, like it's a gross thing that, and you need to apologize for, or, you know, with your partner, it's something you have to give them a heads up on. Cause it's going to mean a shift in your, in your intimacy and your dynamic there. And I, I remember that having kind of a, a shameful relationship to it. And it really isn't until the past eight to 10 years or so that I've developed an appreciation and a reverence and an honoring for that cycle and that time in my life. And then of course, what it means and now being a mother, having appreciation for it. And that carries into now how I'm setting the the stage and the tone for my daughter. She's six now, and she's very clear on what a period is to her, to her level and to her relativity of understanding. She knows it's a bleed once a month. She knows it doesn't happen to me now that I'm pregnant And she's very cool with it. Whereas I did not, I didn't have that relationship. I didn't have someone talking me, talking to me about that at that age. And we're very much about 
normalizing and embracing the body and its process. And that even boils down to the proper terminology and words for the anatomy. You know, it's a labia, it's not the vagina, the vagina is different. So we have those conversations and I'm very grateful for that to create a new paradigm around that in a new generation of, of womanhood. Yeah, I can relate to that so much. I mean, my daughter is still pretty young, but I, I tell her that's your vulva, you know, I tell her that's your vagina, you know, try to tell her, her little parts so that she understands right from, from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so did you ever, it sounds like your period was uncomfortable, embarrassing potentially, which I think a lot of people, especially in that generation, it was, that's just kind of how it was. It was just uncomfortable and shameful and we kind of Mm -hmm. joked about it, but it wasn't what it is now. I think the culture is kind of shifting to having more reverence for Mm -hmm. the, the cycle as a whole. And then the period in particular, Mm -hmm. um, as being like a really beautiful time for ritual and not a time to be, yeah, like ashamed of or anything. Yes. And I was convinced in my young adulthood in college that I didn't have to have a period. I I bought that and I ran with that, that I didn't have to have one, that it wasn't medically or anatomically necessary for me to be having a period because I wasn't interested in having kids. So that means go on the pill where you only get your period four times a year. Yay. It regulates your hormones and all these fantastic things and you won't get pregnant. So I, I sipped that Kool-Aid for a while. And when I look back on life choices and health choices that I would absolutely do differently, it would be to not take hormonal birth control pills. And I didn't even take them for as long as I know other women have just to have taken it for the couple years that I did. And for the reasons that I did it and the misinformed reasons that I did it, it is what it is. I give myself grace from for those younger years. And yet that's that's definitely something again with my daughter. And if I have another daughter, things I would want to have open conversations about and education about what are the costs and risks, like what are the benefits and risks of of this if you choose this in your life. Yeah. So when you decided to go on birth control, was it primarily for birth control or was it because you didn't like your period and wanted it to come less frequently, mostly the latter. So I actually yes. started taking birth control before even being sexually active. And I took it under the, the guise of it'll regulate my hormones. It'll make my period easier. It'll help my body. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why I started taking it. And then afterwards it was a kind of a bonus effect that I wouldn't get pregnant once I did start to become sexually active. Yeah. And it's such a bummer that still in 2022, people are going on birth control to regulate their cycle. And I post about this on my Instagram all the time. And always there's somebody that's like, wait, doesn't it regulate your cycle? Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. are still really confused about how it works and what it's actually doing. And I was on birth control for nine years. So Mm -hmm. I understand that's what I thought it was doing it would make my period go away completely a lot of the time too and I had a similar relationship to it that it was just kind of an inconvenience dirty gross um it's really sad that I felt Mm -hmm. that way but I I do feel so passionate now that I have a daughter to create a different narrative for her yes so anyways so then 
if there's anything else you'd like to share about your cycle, or we can transition into conception and when you were feeling ready to conceive your first daughter, um, yeah, and what that kind of looked like for you. Sure. I think we can transition to that. I, I think just in general period relationship before looking into conception seriously as a thing in my life was just pretty, pretty standard as far as it was regular. And then when I got off the pill was regular, pretty normal flow cramps here and there, tolerable moving through it, that, that sort of thing. And, and mainly just looked at it as a thing to tolerate once a month. I, I think that's the the relationship to it for the most part. And then mm-hmm. it shifted a lot looking at conception time when we felt we, it was the time to have a baby. Yeah. So then how did you, did you, were you aware of like when it's possible to conceive at that time? Were you, what were you using to time intercourse or were you just kind of having sex and whenever you felt like it and then it just happened? Yes. My level of understanding and awareness and education at that time, going back six, almost seven years ago was the period tracker that everyone uses on the phone, the free app, just have it on there and log when you have your cycle. And then that gives you the idea of your windows. And that's what I had for the first time for Mm -hmm. our first pregnancy. And when we got clear, we knew we wanted kids. It was just about the timing and and things lining up and aligning the best for us. So when we felt like that was the time, I knew the window and we were also kind of looking at it like practice, just kind of having fun with it, having a a flowy approach to it. Not this is what we have to do Mm -hmm. and got pregnant in two seconds. Yeah. (laughs) So the very first month we ejaculated inside because we were not doing that prior. The very first couple of times we attempted that pregnant the next month. So that that was that. And I kind of looked at it like, well, that worked. (laughs) Well, and sometimes those period trackers, you know, as long as you have a super regular cycle, which it sounds like you did and you weren't on birth control for, you know, 10 or 15 years. So messing everything up. So yeah, that's wonderful. And then talk us through the pregnancy. What was your first pregnancy? Like first pregnancy was amazing. It was so new obviously I had no context. We were very excited. We created a lot of space to focus on being pregnant and and planning for birth and for our family. At times when I relate to it now, it feels like that took up maybe half of my time. And and certainly energetically, that's where a lot of my headspace and, and emotional space was thinking about becoming a mom and thinking about having this baby and preparing for birth. And life was conducive to that at the time, the way our work was, the way things were going. I I just felt like it was kind of the part-time job was being pregnant and preparing for it. And we originally intended a hospital birth. And that was how we flowed for the first few weeks, the first trimester, essentially. We saw an OBGYN and about almost halfway through the pregnancy, just started to think about our birth differently and started to envision what it could look like and what it could be like. And I was hearing stories and looking into a couple of resources that presented 
birth and this paradigm of birth that I had really never seen or heard of before. And that was that birth could be powerful and transformative and magical. And that it wasn't just this medical event to be managed, put you in a gown, wheel you in in a wheelchair, strap you up to a bunch of things, monitor you heavily and consistently tell you what's going to happen to your body and birth your baby for you to an extent. And here you go. Thank God we were here. Move on. That's not everyone's experience, of course. And I thought if it doesn't have to be anything like that, I'm, I would like to choose something different and being very low risk, being very healthy, and also being the kind of people who envision and, and create, and we're very intentional. Why not? Why not explore it? So we explored what home birth could look like, met with some midwives and felt like that was the path for us. It wasn't so straight and and simple and linear. We definitely had some squiggle around and back and forth. And I don't know about this and the what ifs and the fears Yet through that, we eventually came to the conclusion, to the choice to switch from a hospital model with an OB to a home birth with a certified midwife. So what were the resources or things that you were exposed to, if you can recall anything Mm -hmm. that helped to kind of shift your perspective on that? Yes. A tipping point for me was watching a DVD series at the time called Happy Healthy Child. And in it, it was a multi-part series that presented birth from all these different angles, from preconception, pregnancy, and even postpartum and breastfeeding, and highlighted people that I was not aware of at the time and now recognize as some of my heroes in the birth world, like Deborah Pascali Bonaro of Orgasmic Birth, Michelle O'Donnell. Sarah Buckley, these people talking about birth and then seeing videos of birth. You know, I'd never seen birth beyond what you see in Hollywood or a film or or something to that extent to see an ac- actual footage of a birth where a woman is is honored and supported and there's soft lighting and there's music. And yes, she's emoting and, and moaning and moving through things. Yet after the baby comes, there's this magic in the air and there's skin to skin. So that really opened my eyes and and was a mind-blowing moment just to see all of that. And then other things that trickled in in no particular order along the way were orgasmic birth, gentle birth, gentle mothering by Sarah Buckley, these sorts of things that I was exposed to and just had me, once you see it, once you know what's possible, I, I just couldn't go back. I couldn't not know those things anymore. I couldn't pretend like I hadn't seen that as a possibility and I couldn't ignore the, the, the calling within me that that could be, that could be something for me and that it, it deeply resonated. So those were a couple of the resources and it doesn't seem that long ago yet, six, seven years ago, the world of, of empowered birth and Instagram did not exist the way that it does social media in general, the, the books that are coming out, more podcasts that are coming out, more resources that really wasn't around. And that was part of what inspired us in our journey to create doing it at home because we looked around after we made the leap to have a home birth, we looked around and just didn't see any readily available resources or platforms that connected with us and felt like there were people like us, you know, a young couple like us doing what we were doing. And so there was kind of the impetus for doing it at home. Yeah. 
So when you said that you had some sort of like fears come up and some back and forth about like, is this the right decision? Can you remember, was it mostly coming from you or mostly from your husband or kind of a combination of the two? And some of the, cause I know that for me, like some of the times when people say, you know, it was more when I was pregnant and before I had my home birth of just like, oh, is that safe? And this could happen and that could happen. Like, were there particular things that either of you were concerned about? Yes. And it was a bit of both. It was a bit of back and forth. It wasn't exclusively one or the other. Matthew, my husband comes from a very medical family. His father is a surgeon. His mother is a nurse. And that's kind of the context and point of reference that he has. So when we first started having these conversations, the, the pushback, if you will, was birth happens in a hospital. Does birth just happen in a hospital? And not so much from a, I'm not open to this at all, but I just don't know what I don't know. And I'm kind of confused and a little confronted by this. And we have a very open, transparent, highly mature, communicative relationship where there's safe space to express ourselves like that. And so I wasn't taking any of that personally or kind of like an attack or anything like that. It was okay. How do we unpack this and how do we address this? And I had my own things too, like just the what ifs. Okay. So what if this is going wrong, wrong, or what if this comes up? Don't, don't we need the, the doctor there, don't we need the backup security of the whatever wing <laughs> adjacent to where we are, that it'd be, you know, very much quicker to get there than if we were at home. And just what if, what if I can't do it? I think it was more some of my internal confidence of self and trust in the process, surrender to my body, the baby, et cetera. And it was more just around it. Can I really do it? Mm-hmm. And conversations with the midwife were incredibly helpful. That was one thing that really was a distinguishing factor with the midwifery model of care was how involved and included Matthew was in the conversations. And that was very important to me because the OB appointments, maybe an hour and a half total, when you think about travel, sitting in the waiting room, sitting in the room, and then you see him for about seven minutes compared to an hour's worth of dedicated present time with a midwife across from you on a couch Mm -hmm. in an office that's adjacent to her home. And I don't have to get undressed and I don't have to wear a gown and we're comfortable in this space. And it's this open dialogue that includes the both of us and everything isn't just uh, presented to me and spoken to, to me, it's, it's a communal family approach. And those conversations really helped to ameliorate some of those fears and some of those anxieties where it was, there was an answer. There was an answer to those things. Well, what if this happens? Well, this is what we do. Well, what if this comes up? Well, this is what would happen. And did you know, majority of transfers are Mm non-emergent. It's the kind of thing that we monitor. That's what we're there for. We're flies on the wall to be a, be a presence. And when it seems like it needs to evolve into a different situation, we're ahead of that by 10 steps, or it's the mother's choice due to whatever reason, whatever that might be, because she reserves that right to shift up and to go to the hospital if that's what she wants. So just things like that really, really helped for both of us. And it the order of it was almost 
Hey, Matthew, I want to do this home birth thing. Him, not so much. We go and meet with the midwives. He's thinking, okay, I'm, I'm more open to this. I'm still for it. And then somewhere along the way, he became team home birth. And I had this, this confidence dip and mm-hmm. thought, oh, maybe not. I don't know about this. And at that point, I believe it was Matthew's total confidence and space holding in me for me that brought me back over the edge and thought, okay, yeah, let's do this. Let's, let's move forward. And from there, it was, it was essentially no looking back. Of course, a couple of things came up like sharing with friends and family or just the little things that still might linger, but that's why you have the 10 months, you know, to prepare and to, I mean, at that point, it wasn't 10 more months. We were almost halfway through yet. That's why you have the prenatal appointments. That's why there's that space. And that's why you use that time to get those things out and to process and to use your resources and use your support team to, to, to process and move through that. Yeah. So, um, related to that, I'm curious to know if there are some specific things that you did to either prepare your body or your mind. And then also related to that, I mean, I can really relate to the fears coming up of like, I can't do it. Mm. What was it for you that you thought you couldn't do that the hospital could do for you? Was it like a, like, it's going to be too painful Mm. sort of thing or, and I'm going to need the epidural or was Mm -hmm. it like, I can't push a baby out of this small space and I'm going to need a C-section or can you recall sort of what you were thinking about in, in thinking I can't do it? Like, well, yeah. It, it was probably a combination. It's interesting to put myself back viscerally and experientially into that place because it's been so long and because of who I am now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I can say that it probably was, you know, what if I reach a tap out point? What if I'm just so exhausted or I'm in so much pain potentially? And what if I really want that epidural? What if I, and that's, that's the way. Mm-hmm. something like that or what if just something i can't even fathom or imagine goes down and we need that emergency level of care that that's kind of what i would think it was about and the interesting thing about when you have a fear like that it's usually not coming from a very rational place it's coming from something else that there is to address or look at and I, I think some of the fears just grew and bred other fears that may not have been necessarily my fears or things I really connected with, yet it it, it can snowball. Mm-hmm. So I think it was some of that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so then to go back to the, the question I asked initially, were there any things that you did in particular, um, you know, like meditations or hypnobirthing or, you know, whatever or even physical things. Um, yeah. Anything yes. that you did to prepare your body. Yes. I was very active during my pregnancy. Very. So exercising strength, strength tra- training a few times a week. I stayed active with my running through the pregnancy as well. I ran pretty much up until about 34, 35 weeks, I want to say. And that just worked for me. I understand it doesn't work for everyone. I'm not going about it that way in this pregnancy which is just so fascinating. It just feels different yet that that really worked for me. So on the physical side of things, staying very active, feeding my body well, 
was great and served me well, particularly from the endurance standpoint and the ability to surrender to the waves, the contractions. I believe a lot of that comes from just that discipline I had in terms of knowing what it's like to be in chronic stress and acute stress and how to relate to that. Mm -hmm. So I very much look at my fitness and my exercise as a microcosm for how I'm dealing with the stressors of life. And so I was able to call upon that. And I thought about when I was in those contractions and, you know, you have the intensity and then you have the break, you have the intensity and then you have the break. That's how a lot of my exercising was Mm -hmm. having, you know, the intensity of the, of the hold or the movement, and then you have the pause. So there was certainly that there was my mindset and the people that I was putting myself around in the community that I had access to and still do to this day, which has served me incredibly well and just been so nourishing to me and my family. I was a part of, and I'm in another version now of an accountability group, a collection of men and women, all different ages, stages of life, everything where it is the most intentional space for transparency and vulnerability and going through that at the time and having that while it wasn't anything focused around pregnancy or birth. Yet that's what I would bring to the table when I had stuff coming up to have that accountability and to have that kind of support, I know influenced how I flowed into birth and then how I flowed into postpartum and motherhood. And a couple of those people from our community were present in the room at Maya's birth. And so that spoke to the high level of trust and, you know, really creating a life family. You know, I don't, I don't have a blood, I don't have blood family here in Atlanta where we live. And that was part of my journey and process was to create family that, that, that sense and that experience, all of those things contributed to supporting the preparation for birth. Yeah, absolutely. So since we're already kind of talking about the birth, I would love to talk now about, you know, when you went into labor and how many weeks you were and what the labor and birth was like and who was around what your support team looked like, where you were in your home, Mm -hmm. all that. Yeah. Yes. I was 40 weeks, six days, and we were coming home from an outdoor concert in an amphitheater. And they were playing John Williams scores. So John Williams is famous for Jurassic Park, Star Wars, Harry Potter, all of those uh, scores and music. And Matthew, my husband likes to joke that it was the Star Wars theme song at the end that really kicked things into gear because on the way back to the car, my belly just started tightening and I felt more uncomfortable than what the standard of discomfort was at the time. And I really didn't like sitting in the car to go home. I kept moving around. We got home. It was probably about 1030, I want to say, is is when I think about the totality of the experience, when the the clock kind of, when when I would hit start on that in terms Mm -hmm. of when it shifted into active labor and got home and really could not get settled and comfortable and sleep was not happening. No way. So I went to the bathtub in our bathroom and we have a smaller bathtub, but I knew I just wanted to get in water and we did have a birthing pool set up. We just hadn't filled it yet, obviously, because things hadn't started. So until I was sure what was going on, I didn't really feel like we needed the birthing pool yet. I just wanted to get in the tub. I like to go to water when I don't feel well emotionally or physically. 
and hung out in there for a while. And it was a couple of hours of that, just refilling to comfortable temperature and put on some hypno babies tracks. Matthew sat with me. It was quiet. It was getting into the late evening hours, early morning. I believe we reached out to the midwife at one point just to let her know what was going on. And she said, yeah, it sounds like the early stages here. So just keep me posted. Kind of gave us some markers to look out for as far as the waves and when they were coming and their frequency. Reach out to me when it looks like this and we'll talk again. Lost my mucus plug during that time. Was cleansing a lot. My body was just releasing, I guess, in preparation. So I knew that was possible, but that's just one of those things when it's happening, you're thinking, oh gosh, on top of everything else, I'm going to the toilet every five minutes. Mm -hmm. And once I got out of the tub in the bathroom, Matthew at some point had set up the birth tub in our room, this blow up pool with all these bright fishies on it that I've seen in a lot of other people's birth photos and such got in there. And again, it was, it was beautiful time for us to really soak up the last couple hours of a twosome before we would become a trio. And I remember Matthew just being very affirming, very loving, reminding me of the gratitude and opportunity for gratitude in the, in the situation, in the circumstance, even when it feels tough, just come back to a grateful space. And that really stuck with me and something I carried through the rest of the experience And over the next couple hours, our midwife did arrive once I I guess we were kind of at a point that she thought, yeah, it's time for me to come over. And she came with two apprentices and duffel bags full of gear and stuff for the what ifs and for the anything that they are so well-trained and educated and equipped to do and hold space for that I don't think that the standard narrative appreciates or allows to, to be shared and, and, and provide elucidation on that, that they really come prepared and these are professionals. So anyway, I remember that being a, a moment for Matthew when they showed up like, Oh, okay, this is, this is really happening. We've, we've got the duffel bags. (laughs) And over the next couple hours, uh, the rest of our birth team assembled and came, we had a big birth team. We knew that's what we wanted. We spoke intentionally with each person that we asked to be there and they all served very specific roles and were clear on that. So we had myself, Matthew in the room, the midwife and two apprentices, and then one, two, three, four, five other people as well. One of which included Matthew's mom who wanted to be present and supportive of the experience, which I thought was very cool. And then two other couples. So there were men there as well. And that was something I felt completely comfortable with. They were and are family to me and huge part of of our lives. And I also thought it would be great to have that energy for Matthew. There, Mm. There was just something about him having male support and almost like a daddy doula kind of role that... I didn't need to think about too much or have too much explanation for it around. It just, it just resonated with me. And I wanted him to be well hydrated and fed and taken care of because it was very much our plan and very much played out for him to be very involved in the whole experience. And so I wanted him at his best. 
And in total, the experience was 12 hours from the moment of those contractions starting to Maya's arrival. I stayed in that birth tub in my room for probably 90% of it. That's just what worked for me. I was very still. I didn't move around a whole lot. I had these visions and I've heard this so many times on our podcast and I hear it a lot just in, in women's stories that they have these visions of, I'm going to be dancing around and I'm going to be eating food and I'm going to go for a walk in my neighborhood. And sometimes that happens. That just did not happen for me. It was go into my cave internally and externally, be in the water, be quiet and be still. And that that's just what worked for me. And at any point, I almost always had some person's fist in the side of my hips in the clothespin action to support that and to alleviate some of that pressure I was feeling in my hips. So people were tagging out (laughs) and once they, you know, their fists needed a rest or they needed to stretch their wrists. And I remember at one point, my midwife suggesting to walk around the house a little bit. I wasn't really digging that idea yet. I trusted the intention behind that, that there was probably some thinking behind that. And I had someone on either side of me guide me down the hall, quick turnaround back into the room. And also at one point she encouraged me to sit on the toilet if that felt right. And to also just empty my bladder. And that was where I hit a little bit of a wall in terms of, Oh, I don't know if I can do this. This is just a lot. I haven't slept. I, one of the biggest things I wanted about home birth was the ability to eat and drink freely. I was, had no desire to eat. So I hadn't really eaten. Now I'm going on no sleep from the night before. I'm kind of getting a little tired here (laughs) and thinking how much longer could it be? I mean, if this is going to be a couple more hours, maybe if this is, if you're telling us to give you another half a day to a day, I don't know. You're not really clear. You're not thinking very clearly at that point in terms of logistics. And I remember Matthew just holding the space so powerfully and reflecting back to me you've got this, you can do this. You're supported, you're loved any and all of those things, whether he, whether it was verbal or nonverbal, those are all the things that I got from him and coming out of the bathroom. My midwife said, how about you sit on the birthing stool and let's just feel that out for a second. And when she did that, she asked permission to check me if that was something I was interested in. And I, I consented and I was 10 centimeters dilated. And so she said, if you feel pushy, we could, we could feel that out a little bit. And I was open to that too, because it it felt like a foreign thing at first. I've never pushed anything out of my vagina before. And that's a different set of muscles. And I wasn't really clear. So I really appreciated the, the few moments she took to kind of walk me through that and, and support me in getting the flow because once it connected and once I felt what it could be like, to assist pushing baby down, I was ready to roll for something about that moment. It just clicked. Maybe it's the athlete in me. Maybe it was being complete with the surrender part of birth for the first 11 hours and being kind of tossed around by the waves. Once I knew and felt that I could take a very active role and and be a part of this, the completion of this experience, I just locked in and there was no going back. So I, I pushed actively and that worked for me because later I would find out that she wasn't even fully engaged in the pelvis 
-hmm. yet I was 10 centimeters dilated. So she was still floating. So when I think about it, if it had been many more hours of waiting for her to engage and with the tank I was running on, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. I can't say. I just know once I locked in, I just thought, oh yeah, we're going to work together now. Me and baby are going to work together and we're going to get her out. And 40 minutes later, felt the head come out and gasped. What is that? And she was brought right to my chest immediately. And that's the moment where words kind of lose their, their efficacy in terms of what, what that moment is. And you're, you feel so split. You feel in between worlds. There's this human that you've known for a long time that you haven't experienced them in this way. And now they're lying on your chest and there's this flood of, of hormones and oxytocin and, I'm so grateful I have it on film because parts of it are just kind of blurry Mm -hmm. yet you, you can't forget it. So once she was placed on my chest, my midwife did notice I was bleeding a little bit more than she would like to see. And very calmly, very uh, deliberately, you hear it on the video. She just says, okay, everyone out of the way right now, we're going to get Sarah to the bed, everyone move. And that's exactly what happened. They got me to the bed hit me with some Pitocin and the thigh, everything was fine. And the next couple hours consisted of getting to know this new human who was lying on my chest. The, the room was the, the energy in the room was so palpable in terms of the, the awe and the wonder of what everyone had just witnessed. And we sang her happy birthday. I got to watch the newborn exam at the foot of my bed from where I was lying I had a minor tear. They stitched me up right there in my bed. I got to shower. I got to eat my own food. She, Maya started nursing very shortly after. Truly, truly magical in terms of what I thought had been possible and then to have actualized it and experienced it. It's, it's, it's incredible. I'm very, very grateful and humbled by the whole thing. Yeah, I, I can just relate to so much of your story, um, having had my own home birth and just all of these things, I guess, like at this point, I've kind of started to take for granted a little bit. Like, Mm. of course the newborn exam was in my bedroom. Of course, somebody made me my own food from my (laughs) fridge and I didn't have to put her in a car seat for Mm -hmm. weeks. You know, I, I just think about that of like having to cart the, like such a tiny little being around and bringing them outside and just having them be, in your nest and getting to stay in your nest like that is such a sweet, sweet, special experience. Yes. Um, one thing I'm really curious about, cause I, when I reflect on my own birth, I think I would have, if left to my own devices, I think I would have given birth to her on the toilet mm. in the bathroom with just my doula. Mm-hmm. Like I really didn't want to be touched and I didn't want anybody around. Yeah. Um, So I'm just so fascinated by the, like the number of people, but I mean, I think that it just speaks to the difference and what a birthing woman wants, you know, like there's one person that wants to be kind of alone and then another person that really wants the community, Mm -hmm. you know, supporting them. So I'm, I guess I'm just kind of curious about like what they were up to, you know, during, cause I, I'm just thinking about like, were people like looking at their phones or were they just (laughs) 
like meditating or yeah. Like what was, and were they all in the room with you? Like in any, yeah. Yes. So to answer that at any given point in time, someone would be refilling water for me, getting wet towels or things like that to dab, especially towards the end when I was pushing someone was, we had two dogs at the time. So someone might've been, you know, managing the dogs or putting them outside or inside. One of our friends was kind of documenting and journaling sort kind of time logging things as they were happening. One or two people were videoing and taking photos. And at other times it was just space holding. And I think they could read when the times were appropriate to affirm me. When I watch back, when I watch some of the video that time someone would say, you're so powerful, Sarah, great job. You're doing awesome. And I might've not heard it at the time, or if I had, it certainly didn't bother me. Otherwise, you know, I would have asked people to leave the room and such. It just, we, we had a, a harmony to it that I, that I believe speaks to the level of trust that was there and love and that everyone there was completely supportive of the home birth choice one and two had complete confidence in me and had witnessed birth themselves, whether the women who were there were mothers or the men there had children and had been a part of their children's births as well. And that was important. I'm interested in your mother-in-law in in particular, because you mentioned that you were really happy about that and that she wanted to be involved, but especially because she, you said she was a nurse, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So did she have any like needing to come around to the idea of home birth or was she pretty quick to, you know, kind of support that. Yes. Thank you for that. Cause I didn't mention earlier that despite Matthew's dad being a surgeon and his mother being a nurse, they were completely supportive and on board for it. I think knowing who we are and we had kind of established by this point in our lives by being entrepreneurs, by, by doing other things in life that were maybe a little bit different from what they were used to that when we're set on something that's what we're going to do. And I believe by that point we had built up a nice relationship of trust with many people in our lives that even if it was something they didn't necessarily agree with, they, they could trust the, the process and, and go with it. So she was pretty much on board from the beginning. I don't remember any sort of pushback there. Hmm. And I really looked at her presence there as this gift to give to her as well of being present for the birth of her first grandchild. So it was the first grandchild on Matthew's side, not on my side, mm-hmm. but, and there's a reason my mother wasn't there. So while my mother I was loves curious me, about that. Yeah, yeah. So aside from not living in the state, I still feel and felt love from her yet not on board with the choice. And so that made it very easy to not have her a part of the experience. And I think that's something we're both completely okay with. And it would not have been an add to the space and it would not have been productive for either of us. So that was kind of a non-issue from that point. But Did her perspective shift at all after the birth was like, okay? Interesting question. Not so much. Yeah. Interesting. And that's okay. Yeah. That's what it is. And we're having another home birth. That's our plan this time too. And it's been a non-issue as far as needing to discuss anything. And I think that's just because that's what we chose. And even since home birth, we've established even more life choices and paths that again, people may not be so familiar with or keen on 
that it's kind of a, oh, that's Matthew and Sarah. <laughs> you know, they're doing what they too, do. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the crew, as it were, when Maya arrived, were configured in all different sorts of positions. A couple were towards the back of the room. And we have a very small bedroom, I will add. But master bedroom is a very generous term. There's a bathroom attached to it. but We have a ranch style home with smaller bedrooms. And it was, it was a packed house for sure. Cause we also had the birth tub, mm-hmm. so me, Matthew, three midwives again, and then five other people. And the last person was kind of at the doorway. So just barely in the space, but I was on the birthing stool and Matthew was behind me the whole time that I was on the birthing stool, sitting on a yoga ball. And he had his arms kind of locked underneath my armpits, holding me up and kind of bearing the weight of me when I would move through the contractions and when I would move into pushes and behind him was one of our friends, Bill, who was holding space for Matthew, you know, energetically, or if when there were breaks or something, he would kind of rub his shoulders, rub his back, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the the rest of the crew was either along the side of me, along the wall of the room or kind of back behind the midwives along the room. And you, you hear everyone when Maya arrived, you hear, Oh, you know and you hear different whether it's laughter or some tears or whatnot and everyone was very respectful of the space and and giving us that moment once she did arrive and especially when they got me to the bed Matthew kind of created a cocoon over me and I feel like I don't know if this actually happened but it felt like the rest of the the team kind of fell away at that point Mm -hmm. and it was just us even though I knew they were there holding space and being present I didn't it didn't feel crowded ever even though that's you know a ton of people (laughs) and we are planning to do it differently this time in terms of we had that experience I'm grateful for it and I'm also interested just with who I am now this pregnancy this journey I would like more quiet I would like more insulated more intimate so as far as the birthing room itself goes to jump ahead a little bit, spoiler alert, I guess I'm, I'm envisioning myself, Matthew, midwife, birth photographer, Maya, if she chooses to come in and out. And that's, that's kind of it. And I would love even at points to be by myself or just me and Matthew, things like that, just to have the difference in experience. Yeah. I mean, I'm so curious to hear, I'm sure you'll share about it um, on your podcast mm-hmm. when after the baby is born, but I'm, I'm curious to hear the difference of experience of, you know, having the community vibe versus kind of being a little bit more alone. Um, so I would love for you to, I mean, I would love to talk about like the postpartum phase and stuff like that, but I feel like probably time-wise it makes sense to move into talking about the conception of the baby that you're pregnant with now. So, I mean, if you can just talk about like when your period returned and kind of, I I mean, from what I've gathered from what you've shared on your podcast, you were kind of wanting to, you were open to conceiving earlier than what actually happened. So I'm just kind of curious if you can share about like what was going on with your cycle or, um, anything that you uncovered in that process? Sure. My period returned after giving birth to Maya four months after giving birth. And I was <laughs> a little, Damn it. A, little to, a little to my chagrin Yeah, because I just thought, man, you know, 
can't I get a little bit of a break with this? Like there is no justice in this. And you were were exclusively breastfeeding. I was, I was day and night, you know, on demand. So to have just one more thing and the way I related to my period going forward from that, I want to say at least for the first six months of having a period now, after having had a baby, there was something kind of mournful about it. And maybe it's because when I first got it, the way I related to it and thought about it was, well, the last egg that I had come through was Maya. And so I had this kind of protectiveness or this feeling about my eggs and my ovaries and my womb, like they should all get fertilized. Like fertilize them all. Those are all my babies. It's so precious, you know, that there's this thing now. So there was something very, very interesting that I'd never related to it in that way before or thought about that. And and there was a little bit of a mournful thing. And I think it was another reminder of, you know, I'm not pregnant anymore. I'm not having a baby anymore. I'm not in that life space anymore. Something about that brought up stuff and gave me the opportunity to let go and heal and period regulated pretty well after that. And over the course of the next couple of years, I got to look at how I felt about our continued family planning and what original intentions and ideas I had around that. And then how that matched up with reality, reality, meaning what's actually most conducive for us and what's most supportive of our lifestyle, our finances, our intimacy and marriage dynamic, learning to be parents for the first time with this new human, all of those things factored in. Yet I kind of had an attachment in my mind that my children would be close in age. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean the two year range, because I have a huge gap between myself and my siblings. I have two older sisters. They're 18 months apart. And then 13 years later, I came around. So I didn't have a close sibling experience. And coming out of that, I think really fueled my idea and desire to have children close together. And so we, when we were coming close to that two-ish year mark, I felt the antsiness and the anxiety kind of, of wanting to be pregnant. Yet at the same time, I knew in my bones, I did not necessarily want to be a mother again, mm-hmm. but I did want to be pregnant again. And I wanted to go through that experience, but I was not signed up for energetically going through the whole thing again. Mm-hmm that took some time to get with. And that, that took a lot of conversations and vulnerability and talking it out with Matthew. So So during, during that time, when you were kind of grappling with what you wanted to do, how are you managing your fertility? Were you using condoms or? No, we pull out and know the time frame roughly and just been blessed. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's I'm how always I just curious anyway. about that when people yep. don't go on birth control. Um, Correct. Yeah. 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 No yeah. birth control efforts. And at the same time, not actively in a space of trying to be trying to conceive. Got it. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so time, time kept pressing on other life events, like being present with our one child and daughter and growing our businesses and doing all those things. And about the beginning of 2020, 
we felt like it was getting closer to the time when it would it would actually work for us to bring another child in in terms of it would be sustainable and it wouldn't be at the depletion of our time energy resources well-being and and so she would have been she was three mm-hmm. or four yeah yes okay got yes it. she was three and early spring comes around and we moved from the talking about it intention phase into the let's get into action phase and we officially started trying as it were we preferred the term open to conceive just because the trying just didn't sit well with me in terms of the the energy around the wording mm-hmm. and the the feeling that it evoked so we shifted that to open to conceive and that started in about March of 2020 and the world changed a lot then too, sure did, which yeah. don't need to go into all that. Mm-hmm. We're very, we're very clear on what a lot of that meant, but that didn't deter us at all. The way we crafted our lives and our work-life balance at the time in our community, thankfully, prayerfully, we were not affected a whole lot in terms of life changing for us. We already worked from home 24 seven, all of that. Mm-hmm. So it didn't, it didn't change any of our plans. We were still moving full steam ahead and one month. Okay. I guess it's just going to take us a minute to get on track here. Two months. Mm, okay. Three months. What's going on? <laughs> this is not what happened last time. What's the deal here? And then it was another month and then another month and another month. And there would be 24 months total of another period and another cropping up of, of questions and thoughts and feelings and opportunities to have faith, trust, and surrender around the whole thing. So it was a, it was a very interesting experience and, and life lesson. Yeah. So did you ever go down the rabbit hole of like, I'm going to test all my hormones or I'm going to go to a fertility doctor or anything like that? A little bit. There were some actions we took. So from the beginning, I just went to the period tracker again, thinking that's what I did last time. That's what I'm going to do this time. After a few months of that, it was, okay, let's get the ovulation sticks. Let's do that. Let's make sure I'm actually ovulating. Did that let's get an astrological fertility calendar to support the period tracker. I've never heard of that. There's this, I don't know if you would call it a school of thought, but an option out there where it takes into account your, your astrological being, if you will, and days that you are likely to conceive. And sometimes they overlap with the physical chart I saw and sometimes they didn't yeah it was just another tool why not throw it up on the fridge mark it up yeah now we have more days that we can do it so (laughs) there's that and then along the course of that there was the emotional dynamic of of myself and Matthew where it was becoming a drain and a, a strain and a thing to do and a little bit robotic and mechanical as far as timing is concerned. And are we missing windows of opportunity to make a deposit, but we're not in the best space right now. We're not in the best space right now for this, but we should still do it because we could miss this opportunity and a whole other month would go by. 
things like that, that just were not fun. We're not fun at the time. We explored a semen analysis. We did that. Matthew was open to that. Results were flying colors, awesome swimmers. So I thought, great, you're fine. It must be me. There must be something Mm -hmm. wrong with me. And something kept me, even with it going on for two years, something kept me from going down the route of getting a full analysis of what was going on inside of me. And I think that was because I'd heard too many stories and and listened to, to too many women and held space for, for too much where say I got something that said, you can never have another child. Was that going to change anything for me? Was mm-hmm. that going to really shift my desire and our trajectory moving forward? If some piece of paper or some lab or something told me you will not be able to conceive again. Because I've heard too many people be told that and then can see And it's usually BS. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. right. So something just kept me from going down that route. And instead we would just recirculate back through, okay, looking at the calendar more diligently, doing the ovulation sticks, letting it all go for three months and thinking if I just never, if I don't look at the app for three months, it's just going to happen. Or if, if we just surrender it all, throw caution to the wind, it's going to happen. So it would just be cycles of that and eventually got to, I would say the highest working level of peace around the situation. And that just took, a, it took time. I, I can't say it's one particular thing. It, it was, it was time. It was crying. It was conversations with other women. It was opening up about it at, on doing it at home and sharing it with the community and getting feedback there and hearing other people's journeys and stories. It was a multitude of things. And one interesting piece of it was we have one other bedroom in our house that I earmarked for a nursery from spring of 2020. And Time went on and time went on, but I wouldn't let anyone do anything with the room. I wouldn't let anyone make it a kind of room other than what I was intending for it to be. And then at the very beginning of this year, 2022, I surrendered that. And I thought there's this empty space in our house that nothing, we're not doing anything with. And I could be utilizing it. I could make, I could make it a beautiful space. I could make it this kind of she shed, if you will, within the house and a meditation space. And I'm going to do it. And it was a huge move for me to go from where I had been mentally around it to now I'm going to paint these walls. I'm going to get new curtains. I'm going to get new furnishings. I'm going to do all these things and create a space. And I created a space and the room was complete. And the next month we got pregnant. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to happen frequently. (laughs) So it was not just a room, you know, it was. It was so much more than that. And there is not one thing that I could pinpoint that made anything about that month different as far as what we did, when we did it, how we did it. There were, it was, it was me, it was me needing to get out of the way Mm -hmm. of a process and to allow and be okay with not having an answer or an explanation or to even attach to a term like fertility journey or challenge or unexplained fertility. None of that resonated with me when people would say that, you know, Oh, you know, you're overcoming or second child infertility or things like that. That just never resonated with me. Yeah. I mean, even, yeah. Secondary infertility. Yeah. that. I mean, yeah. As an acupuncturist, people say they treat infertility all the time. And I've always felt uncomfortable with that term 
because you can't, I mean, infertility is not what you're doing. You're, Mm -hmm. you're supporting someone in achieving optimal fertility. Maybe it would be like a better way to say it. And I know it's kind of like a buzzword and people know what it means and that's fine. But yeah, I just, I really appreciate you sharing about that. And I also appreciate that. Yeah. It's sometimes there are just these, they seem random to us that are, we're trying to analyze the situation and figure out what was different. And there's probably a lot of things that were different that we don't necessarily know about, you know, energetically, so many, so many things potentially Mm -hmm. that you can't think about or know for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's wonderful that you are pregnant. And I would love for you to share about pregnancy so far, um, maybe some of the things that are surprising to you. And then also, well, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, the, the birth plan, but if you want to share anything more about, about that, like things you're maybe doing differently or. Yes. Yeah. I'm so grateful for this pregnancy and for so many reasons, one, to get the opportunity to go through it again and to experience it again. And having been pregnant before, it's this interesting combination of you have context, you have some expectation, I suppose you could call it that. And yet it's, it can be so different. So there's this familiarity yet newness all at the same time. And it has been six years. So in in that sense too, it feels a little bit like, I don't remember this or this happened or this came up. So I've absolutely had those moments. And one thing on a mental, emotional, spiritual level that's different about this pregnancy for me is one of the things I had to get over, I guess you could put it that way in the preconception journey and process was understanding and coming to peace that by becoming pregnant, I wasn't going to be a happier person. It wasn't going to change the problems in my life. It wasn't going to mean anything about me as a woman. So realizing that and doing some work on that beforehand has helped in now being pregnant. I'm not looking to this pregnancy to make my marriage better, make me a better mother, means I'm a healthier, more fertile person. Like none of these things, it's a circumstance and it's a life experience that I'm incredibly grateful for that I've created. But I say that just because I think we hold on to a lot of these things that we want to create, whether it's a pregnancy or a relationship or a job or a thing, these external things that we believe are going to validate us. And that's not it. It's not going to. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you really get to do the humbling work of preparing yourself to be able to receive the thing when it does come so that you can be in the fullness of the experience and have gratitude for it and really wear it on. And I believe that's what's allowed me to do that with this pregnancy that I didn't look at that stick and then feel validated mm-hmm. and that it worked and I work and it's it's all going to be okay because my life's still going on. We still, we, we still have ups and downs. We still worry about finances and family dynamics and all these things are still happening. In fact, I believe experienced this last time and it's kind of trending the same way that a pregnancy and a baby magnify a lot of things in your life. So the things that are not together, you're going to, those cracks are going to be larger as you go through it. So I just wanted to add that because that's been a very relevant, potent thing for me that just to remember that I'm still me, I'm who I choose to be 
this pregnancy doesn't mean or validate or, or shift anything about my life as a whole. And I'm incredibly grateful to, to have this experience. Did and, you have that realization before you got pregnant or? Yes. After, yeah. I was thinking, so there's, it's interesting. Cause I have a teacher that she's an acupuncturist, but she talks so much about like the spiritual aspects of fertility and talks about that a lot, that a lot of times women, when they're coming to like work with you for their fertility, they're wanting this baby to complete them or complete yes. their life or um, make them happy, like you said. And that yes. that is that she invites them to like, just kind of consider that possibility that that's what they're seeking. And what are the other ways that they can have more fulfillment in their lives while they're it, you know, it's not like, okay, I don't care about the baby thing anymore. Right. It's not about not caring it or not desiring it. It's just about like, what is this actually about for me? So I just, yes. I love that you share that. And, um, yeah. Yes. Thank you. I hope it can help someone because it, it's an incredibly high level of mastery to desire something, hold space for it, as well as be very present to what you do have and be aware of the abundance that you do have and be grateful for what you do have. That mm -hmm. It's, it's a dance. It's not easy. And yet it can bring you a lot more peace when you, when you focus on creating a balance there. So every time I would you know, be frustrated about not getting pregnant again. I have an amazing, beautiful, healthy daughter who I get to spend time with and how much of me being in a state of scarce scarcity and lack around this thing, am I missing what's going on right here, right now in front of me? That doesn't mean I can't still desire this experience yet. Let's keep a balance here. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yes. That this pregnancy though has felt different in so many ways, physically very different. Everything has happened sooner. <laughs> I got bigger sooner, a little bit discomfort, uh, uncomfortable sooner, things like that on just the kind of comical, less than fun aspects of it. And I'm thinking a lot more about postpartum then I am actually the, the birth experience. Of course, I'm, I'm putting intention around the birth experience and just having had one human and navigating that, thinking about the integration of another just has me go to a different place in terms of what I'm intending for and what I'm planning for that I had no awareness of the first time. Mm -hmm. So that I would think is, is a big difference in terms of just how I'm moving about the pregnancy. And I don't know if I'm going to be pregnant again. So there's another element there of, you know, soak up every, every moment, even when I'm uncomfortable and cramping and doing this, that, and the other, come back to the gratitude because it's, it is going by quickly and it's going to go by. And before you know it, you just, there's going to be a baby here. So, yeah. So, yeah, I'm curious to know what about the postpartum phase that you're wanting to do differently. Yes. I am really excited in a nerdy way to set up support in a, in a very solid way. So that, that looks like the meal trains that looks like who can come and support and hang out with Maya. Maybe when she needs some one-on-one -on -one time with someone or take her out to go get a bubble tea or who can help pick her up from school and take her to school, particularly in those first early days 
where I don't necessarily want Matthew to have to go out and do that. And, you know, we can stay home with, with the baby and such things like that, that I, I feel like I've grown and matured so much in my ability to receive help from others and also to voice exactly what I need so that I'm not disappointed when it's not what I really wanted. Mm -hmm. Working on that over the years, I believe is going to serve me very well. And therefore everyone else in this postpartum experience, because I'm going to be more clear on what works for me and what I want. And then I'm going to benefit, baby's going to benefit Maya, Matthew, and then the people who help, you know, I'm going to be completely trusting that by you saying you can do X, Y, and Z, that you can do X, Y, and Z. And I don't need to worry about it or try to manage it. If you say you got it, you got it. And I'm going to let go of the rest. So in that sense, I'm very much looking forward to the, the support that we have around us. I'm looking forward to taking intentional time off in a, in a maternity leave sense as being entrepreneurs. There's so many benefits to it. And it's also interesting at times to navigate things like how much work can we actually take off and how much can we automate and how much can we outsource? So thinking about that has been an interesting little Rubik's cube to play around with and, and to see what, what the dynamic of three to four looks like and feels like, and what it's going to be like to mother another child, to go through newborn all over again. I'm very excited for that. And I'm excited to have a unique dynamic with another child and just get that experiential piece of, I love you both so fully, yet you're different people. And I have different relationships and different dynamics with each of you. I'm, I'm looking forward to how that unfolds. Yeah, that's beautiful. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, if there's anything else you'd like to share about um, this birth in planning for the birth, things that you're doing differently. Um, yeah. And then we can kind of wrap up from there. Sure. So I mentioned I'm envisioning a more intimate space. That's, that's probably one of the biggest differences just in terms of being alone at times, being just with Matthew at times, we have a birth photographer, which we did not have the first time. Didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> the first time. Is it someone you already know, or it's someone I know through mutual folks and through the birth world and had seen her work before. And now there's this next component of it. And so she's aware of who we are and I've followed her for a bit. So there's that. And I intend to nurture that relationship more over the coming months because, you know, that is a very intimate space. And so that's, that's something I'm looking forward to that way. There's no more cell phones in the room or anyone on a cell phone. I'm, I'm very keen on that and that there's a designated person and that there'll be really pretty pictures. <laughs> I'm looking forward to yeah, that for sure. But that's it. That's a different element. And, you know, we've talked to Maya about it. We keep that conversation open that she has total autonomy in her choice to be in the room or not in the room. And then we also have plans for if she doesn't want to be in the room, someone to be here with her in the house, still giving her that option, things like that. And I would like to use the water element again. Was Maya yes. born in the birth tub? No, on the yeah, birthing on the stool. stool. She was okay. on land. <laughs> yeah, born land, on baby. land. Mm -hmm. Yes. Those are those are some of the things when I when I think about the birth itself and and I'm excited for it. I'm excited to to get to experience that again. But those are, are probably the 
the biggest differences or just, or just things I'm thinking about when it comes to the, the experience. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm excited to hear how it all unfolds. Um, I'm imagining that you'll continue to share um, at least until you give birth. Um, so yeah, at this point, I would love for you to share about where people can find you, um, your website, the podcast, Instagram, wherever you're most active on social media. Yes. Thank you. So the podcast is available in any podcast player doing it at home. You look it up and we do have our website, D I H podcast.com. And from there are kind of the links to everything else. We are active on social media. Instagram is doing it at home. And then we have a book on Amazon, which you can get in paperback or ebook that's available there. It's called doing it at home. And we have really fun merch too, which we've had a lot of fun sharing with people over the years, you know, like tank tops and mugs and onesies and things that say fun stuff, like have babies where you make them or born at home and things like that. So that's been really cool. And to see people out in the wild, you know, wearing a doing it at home shirt is just the coolest thing ever. So those are some ways that you can connect in some of the the things that we've created. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. I didn't even know about the the book or the merch. So yeah. I'll have to go check that out. Um, well, yeah. So thank you so much for being here and all of the links will be in the show notes for anybody that wants to check anything else out. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified of future episodes as they're released. One of the other ways that you can help to support the podcast is by giving us a rating and writing a review, especially on Apple, so other people can find the podcast more easily. You can also find us over on Facebook at the Womb Wisdom Community, and you can also find more information about my business and the offerings that I have both in person and virtually on my website, rosebudwellness.com, which is also linked in the show notes. In person, I offer acupuncture, Arvigo abdominal massage, and yoni steaming sessions in Thousand Oaks, California. And virtually, I can work with anybody all over the world with yoni steam consultations, or even if you just want to talk about other women's health related things, um, overall health, I can also work with you virtually. And most recently, I have been offering fertility awareness method mentoring. So I can do that from anywhere as well. So please reach out and until next time.